0: Welcome to Moonlight Writers Club, a podcast for writers attempting to further their creative goals while juggling the demands of work, home, and remembering to feed the dog. I'm your host, Molly Thornton, here to highlight and reimagine the wisdom of new and time-worn craft advice and speaking with folks who have carved out writing careers or mastered the balancing act of writing with a full life. Before we begin, let me set the scene. Outside my window, there are palm trees stretching toward the sky, and a rainbow of pastel buildings sprawling out before me. There's also a constant barrage of trucks, sirens, and a dumpster that seems to be emptied every time I record an episode. So, thanks in advance for your patience with the sounds of LA as they appear in the background. Hey, Moonlighters! Welcome to Moonlight Writers Club. It's me, your host, Molly Thornton. I'm a Los Angeles-based creative writer who dabbles in poetry, nonfiction, and fiction. I'm currently working on a queer psychological thriller about bad friendships and scary houses. I'm also a creative writing coach who works with writers like you to build their writing practice, finish their first draft and shape up their story. I love helping people bring their creative visions to life by breaking down big projects into bite-sized steps. And I send a lot of emails that end with rah, rah. So today we're here for the third episode on our journey through the artist's way. If you've been following along, You are now familiar with the foundational practices of the artist's way, the morning pages, and the artist's date, and you've dabbled in the themes and topics of chapter one and two of the book with me. In today's episode, we'll cover the best of chapters three and four, also known as week three and four, if you're taking this as a 12-week journey of the workbook and I'm going to throw in my best thoughts on the themes and practices at hand in these chapters, as well as give you the highlights. We're going to talk about anger, shame, dealing with change, releasing delusions, receiving critical feedback, and a wild challenge called reading deprivation. Sounds kind of heavy. I know it's not going to be as dark as it seems, I promise. Are you with me? I am excited to share this episode with you. So let's get started. We are at the top of this chapter talking about anger. Okay. Because Cameron begins this chapter with the subject heading anger, I'm assuming she thinks this is the point in the process when you're going to rebel against it and experience that as some sort of outburst. Is that right? Do you have access to your anger? Some of us might feel some other coping mechanisms come in here. Frustration, resentment, boredom. You may be seeking distraction or feeling like it's just disinterest you have towards this process, plain and simple. We're going to talk more about some of the things that may actually be going on. Let's talk first, though, about what this anger may be besides frustration with the process. Cameron's talking about anger at other people. Anger that's doing a specific job. It's demonstrating our fears that we'll never have our time. We accuse other people of already having our success, writing the story we would have written, winning the prize we would have won, touting the creative system we use. Cameron retools these outbursts to mean, quote, You want to make blank movies? Insert medium here. You need to learn how. Stop procrastinating. Ideas don't get opening nights. Finished plays do start writing, and it's time to take your own ideas seriously enough to treat them well. Those are her words. So she's saying that anger is showing us the direction to head in. Whatever frustration we're seeing, whatever anger or jealousy we're experiencing from other people's wins or what we even perceive as their wins, don't worry, it's all information good information. Begin to catalog, take note of what do you see other people doing that you want to put down, that you want to prove you could do better, or that makes you feel like a lack about yourself and that you're not going to get there. That's not true. So let's begin working with that and just having compassion for that feeling and being able to question what that may mean about where you would actually like to point your boat. Another concept that is discussed in chapter three is synchronicity. Here, Cameron wants us to accept this concept of synchronicity. Like if you start going towards the things that are your creative life opening yourself up to pursuing your dreams, admitting you want them, that the universe is going to answer you. If like me, you're a little bit low on the faith portions, maybe this isn't your favorite concept. For others, this may be a guiding light. And if I, when I can let myself lean into this and surrender to it, I have to admit it is, pretty, it is a pretty great feeling. So the idea being that you're going to get the answers you need, you're going to get the support you need, the resources are going to come if you can just keep doing the next right thing and just stay the course to be truly aligned with yourself. So among other things, she offers an idea she attributes to young which is, quote, the possibility of an intelligent and responsive universe acting and reacting in our interests. So my mind absolutely screams with questions about inequality when I get anywhere near the idea that we must simply turn ourselves over to G.O.D. and our right life will come. But I do find this idea interesting With that in mind, she says that in her experience, quote, the universe falls in with worthy plans, and most especially with festive and expansive ones. I love that. If these concepts allow you to unclench your white-knuckled fingers from your bicycle and start enjoying the scenery, then this is of service to you and run with it. I find some adjacent concepts more directly dealing with not trying to earn good things or having basic needs met help me a bit more. So the idea being that you just deserve to pursue what you want. You deserve to have healthy relationships, have the resources that you need, have space in your life to access your own mind, your own emotions. You deserve that. And whether or not, the universe is aligned with that, you deserve it. And you get to move towards that, accept things that show up that are in support of that rather than questioning them or living in a, you know, anti-synchronicity idea where ultimately you're going to close the door to things that you deserve and that you need and that can help you. In the first place, we have to have the faith, trust, and vulnerability to even admit what we want, what we're after before we can begin to know how it will become. So again, this is a place to let go of knowing in advance what the steps are going to be to get what you want before you allow yourself to just want that. Cameron reassures that if you first choose what you would do, the how usually falls into place too. So to those still future tripping, let go of the how that you can see from where you are, the plan that seems too difficult, too big, too overwhelming, too impossible. The how can only follow the what and it reveals itself one piece at a time. You don't need to know the whole road. You don't need to know what you're going to need or what you're going to do five steps from now in order to take the first step in the right direction. Counter to fears of lack and striving, Cameron suggests, quote, we like to pretend that it is hard to follow our heart's dreams. The truth is It is difficult to avoid walking through the many doors that will open. Turn aside your dream and it will come back to you again. Get willing to follow it again and a second mysterious door will swing open. I love this idea, the reminder that we can't just lose our dreams. I think that's such a common fear to have the idea that if something occurred to us at one point in our lives, or we were on the track towards it, and we let it go, or we never went towards it, that we've missed our chance, or that even though we don't know what our dream is, that we're never going to find it. So when whatever it is, or multiple things that it is come back around You may remember a time when you were on that track or you knew that was your dream and suddenly you can see multiple ways in which you have attempted to approach that or perhaps just that you have built skills toward your dream in ways that are non-linear, possibly without consciously knowing it. The freedom here is that The dreams are not going to go away. Our dreams don't abandon us. Is that way too cheesy? Okay, Cameron includes a quote I really love here. I first encountered it set to music, and while I am unwilling to sing it for you, you're welcome. Perhaps you can turn it into a song for yourself and commit it to your memory, as I have. So the quote is from Goethe who, do you know who he is? Maybe you know more about him than I do. I just know that I see his name a lot and I know this quote. Anyway, here's what he said. Whatever you think you can do or believe you can do, begin it. Action has magic, grace, and power in it. I love this. Let's say it again. Whatever you think you can do or believe you can do, begin it. Action has magic, grace, and power in it. So beautiful. All right, I'm ready to take you downtown now. We are going to shame town. Well, let's not go to shame town, but we're going to talk about it. Something much more interesting than inspiration and moving into action and the magical stars that swirl around you as you begin it. Just the little topic of shame. Mayhaps the reason we have not just begun it. If you've walked yourself through some of the prompts and exercises from last week on paper or even mentally, you may have gone through the process of singling out a few events or circumstances where you were shamed or that made you ashamed of your art or of yourself. Maybe those prompts felt too on the nose. If so, just flag it. Flag it in your brain. Notice when those memories, when those stories come to you, they will. Just this morning, I remembered that someone I dated once criticized my voice, and I had to wonder if that was part of why it took me until now to create this show, despite my deep, deep love of podcasts and my desire to join in the fun since like, checking my freckle watch 2017 yes i am that sensitive you may be too it's okay anyway you may have singled out criticism on your creative work or a public review that shamed you a family member whose middle name was the shame game these instances may be easy to point to from this vantage point and shedding some light on them may be helpful in and of itself But what may stop you up as you continue is something deeper, which is the way that these situations may have been internalized. Cameron says, quote, For the artist who endured childhood shaming over any form of neediness, any type of exploration, any expectation, shame may kick in even without the aid of a shame-provoking review." If a child has ever been made to feel foolish for believing themselves talented, the act of actually finishing a piece of art will be fraught with internal shaming. Damn, Julia. She also says, many artists begin a piece of work, get well along in it, and then find as they near completion that the work seems mysteriously drained of merit. It's no longer worth the trouble. She then brings up therapists and says, yours will see right through this as a routine coping mechanism to protect yourself. So I say, bring it to your therapist, and if you don't have one, get one. Watch out for this, though, detachment, numbing out, letting things go that were super important and interesting last week that you've made headway on. Look for ways that you've had to protect yourself from disappointments and neglect from people you shouldn't have had to protect yourself from. She says, quote, A lifetime of this kind of experience in which needs for recognition are routinely dishonored teaches a young child that putting anything out for attention is a dangerous act. Dear listener, I love you. If you are up against this, I'm so very sorry It can be so difficult to grapple with how to protect yourself and be brave at the same time how to go forward. Both are possible. You can protect yourself and you can stick with it. Value yourself and your labors. Begin to notice the ways that those internalized stories and fears crop up for you and look at them as that little evil, intrusive creature who you dubbed them as in week one and replace their little voice with the recognition that you are so very worth it. Julia Cameron says, the antidote for shame is self-love and self-praise. I'm here for it. Let's take a moment here to talk about dealing with criticism. So all that stuff about shame, we're going to guess that a lot of that maybe happened in the recent, if not the distant past. But as you go on as an artist and you do present things to the world, you are going to sometimes have other people give you critical feedback on your work. So let's talk about what kind of criticism is helpful and what criticism is damaging and unwelcome. I want to first talk about the timing of criticism or feedback as well. It is not always the right time to get feedback. So for now in this process, let's lean on the instructions of the morning pages and remember that those are probably never ever for others to review. As well, if you're in your early creative life or developing a newish idea or project, no matter how many things you've made before, you may want to keep it to yourself unless you have already vetted your most trusted accomplices for creative work who are safe for your new and tender creative ideas. Hint, this is a very exclusive tier and some ideas sometimes maybe too fresh for anyone's eyes or ears, but your own. And don't be surprised if there is one or only a very small handful of folks who you can trust to carefully hold new ideas you're generating and incubating before you've had a chance to develop them. So I always say Hold on, get as far as you can on your own. If you are sharing ideas and your creative projects with people when they're in the early stages, be sure to set the parameters about what kind of feedback you do and don't want and just maintain control of what sort of feedback you are getting. All right, let's get into when it is time for criticism. Julie Cameron offers some useful language about criticism. So here's a green light. She says, Useful criticism may be notes that are greeted by an internal aha if it shows the artist a new and valid path for their work. Another green light. Useful criticism ultimately leaves us with one more puzzle piece for our work. Here's some red flags. Look out for... The criticism that damages, which is that criticism that disparages, dismisses, ridicules, or condemns. It is frequently vicious, but vague and difficult to refute. Another red flag. A perfectionist friend, teacher, critic, or parent can get us blocked or cause us to stop sharing our work. Another red flag. Folks who want to shame us for making our art because, quote, our art reveals a secret of the human soul. The release of ourselves and others from darkness is not always a welcomed release, she says. We must be very firm with ourselves and not pick up the first doubt. So these all say, you know, be aware of when what someone is talking to you about that's framed within the work you made is not actually about the work you made. Some of the criticism you get will be completely wrong. It may not be based in fact, it may be entirely subjective or not based in reality at all. Projections and power trips will create chaos if you honor them. Julia Cameron emphasizes timing here as well, saying a first draft is seldom appropriate Least shown to anyone, but the most gentle and discerning eye. To counter this, Julia Cameron says, my years in artistic recovery had taught me to just show up. She tells a story about a film critic dismissing her new movie and feeling completely mortified and ashamed. That same film was then chosen for a film festival And she was scared to go, still beat down by the criticism she had received, which she now took for true. But she went and at the film festival, she received great honors. Her film was sold at a great price and had a headline in Variety. So just keep going. Another remedy, quote, remember that even if you have made a truly rotten piece of art, It may be a necessary stepping stone to your next work. Art matures spasmodically and requires ugly duckling growth stages. Get back on the horse. Make an immediate commitment to do something creative. And do it. Creativity is the only cure for criticism. I agree with Julia 100%. It's a get back on the horse kind of situation. Also, you get to stop and feel crappy first. Just don't take it for true. All right, to sum up this chapter, here is a super comprehensive little version of it all. If you just missed everything else about chapter three, here's what it was straight from Julia Cameron. Many blocked people are actually very powerful and creative personalities who have been made to feel guilty about their own strengths and gifts. Without being acknowledged, they are often used as batteries by their families and friends who feel free to both use their creative energies and disparage them. When these blocked artists strive to break free of their dysfunctional systems, they are often urged to be sensible when such advice is not appropriate for them. Made to feel guilty for their talents, they often hide their own light under a bushel for fear of hurting others. Instead, they hurt themselves. All right, from chapter three, there's a couple of activities I'm going to offer you as homework. The first is take a look at your habits. Looking for anything that interferes with your self-nurturing or causing shame. Cameron asks, do you have a habit of watching TV that you don't like? Of hanging out with people you don't really like or don't find interesting? List three obvious rotten habits. And then answer, what's the payoff in continuing them? Here's a follow-up on that one. She says to look for a few of your subtle foes. So some rotten habits are sneakier. Do you have any like these? No time to exercise. Little time to pray. Always helping others. Not getting any self-nurturing. Hanging out with people who belittle your dreams. What use do these forms of sabotage have? Okay, now, finally... Make a list of friends who nurture you. Nurturing you means they give you a sense of your own competency and possibility. She says there's a big difference between being helped and being treated as if we are helpless. List three nurturing friends and their traits that serve you well. And then, if you feel like it, reach out to one of those friends. Okay Franz, you hanging in with me? So dense, so much in here. We are going to hop straight into chapter four. What we are dealing with now, after all of the inner and outer work of the first three plus weeks, are experiencing honest changes. As our practice of morning pages and setting time aside for ourselves and our artist dates becomes extensive. We may begin to notice a difference between what JC calls our real feelings versus our official feelings. The morning pages don't deal in what we front to other people. They begin to know what's going on underneath our facade as a distinction between who we are versus what we present appears or things we'd rather ignore become apparent in our writing, we may suddenly desire to leave the pages behind. Cameron warns against falling for this ruse and instead encourages us to process whatever strong feelings are emerging on the page. She says, as we notice which friends bore us, which situations leave us stifled. We are often rocked by waves of sorrow. We may want our illusions back. We want to pretend the friendship works. We don't want the trauma of searching for another job. They spell out the truths of our situation. She says, in short, the morning pages point the way to reality. This is how you're feeling. What do you make of that? And furthermore, What we make of that is often art. So let's talk about surrendering our delusions and the difficulty of doing that. This is where some really major things can come up. Different versions of a myth that many of us may be living by as truth, which is needing to debunk the idea that creativity comes from fantasy rather than reality. This myth shows up as the idea that You can't be sober and make art. You have to be an alcoholic or a manic pixie dream girl to be interesting, inspired, and inspiring. Instead, in fact, we're called to release our false selves and delusions in order to make our art. To this, she says, People frequently believe the creative life is grounded in fantasy. The more difficult truth is that creativity is grounded in reality, in the particular, the focused, the well-observed, or specifically imagined. As we lose our vagueness about ourselves, we become available to the moment, and art lies in the moment of encounter. She says, as we gain or regain our creative identity, we lose the false self we were sustaining. So what happens as we change, a.k.a. who am I becoming? Healing our creative selves makes us different. How the changes show up for you can be highly varied and individual. But in general, Cameron suggests that you may find that many areas of your life that previously seemed to fit stop fitting. Suddenly, your tastes change. You don't like your clothes, your furniture, your tastes in music, or you just have a new clarity about expressing what you like and don't like. She says, your tastes and judgments and personality and personal identity will begin to show through. Depending on who you are and where you are in life as you encounter the practices and ideas of the artist's way, A dramatic shift or resistance may not come to you. You may notice only subtle shifts or they may take longer, or you may just notice comforting, helpful changes or shifts that feel long overdue. However, the discussion of these potentials within the book and here in this episode are included to reassure those of us who feel gigantic emotional tectonic plates rumbling at any point in this journey. In my experience, fear of change, of leaving people behind, letting bad relationship dynamics go, and attempting to find real presence in my life were absolutely horrifying and difficult for me to accept when I first practiced my creative identity as an adult. It took me multiple attempts and lots of time to parse out, reckon with, and eventually accept the changes within myself and their ripple effects in my life in order to stay the course and align more truly with myself. Cameron says... The old you is leaving and grieving, while the new you celebrates and grows strong. As with any rupture, there is both tension and relief. You may feel that your old life has crashed and burned. Your new life isn't apparent yet. In the meantime, just keep walking. You may miss the certainty of the life you're leaving behind, or you may be reluctant to let things go because you don't know what else there could be. Even once you've made a decision to change, there can be a great temptation to return to a previous iteration. This is the confusion and difficulty of change, self-directed change, because not you don't know where your new ideas and desires are taking you. And that indecision, that uncertainty can be really scary. And the option to return to the way things were is probably still there. In my experience, sticking with the new changes that we make about ourselves, the alignments that we take steps to move into, are very threatened by the fact that the life you had likely doesn't let go willingly. Even when you say no and cut ties to people or situations that no longer suit you, they'll continue to knock on your door. Either in the same forms or new people, new opportunities, new situations with the same dynamics and problems. And you'll have to reconsider again the answer you already decided on. This is part of the spiral path. Some of these choices that you may be making now are choices you will make again and again. Remember that this is normal and it is part of the process and you can keep saying no. I think a lot of the ideas from the previous chapter offer some remedy and solutions here to how to stay the course, moving back to the idea of, if you're willing, synchronicity or just a bit of surrender and trust in taking things one thing at a time taking note of what the benefits are as you experience them about allowing room for your creative life in whatever form it's taking. You may have a lot that you are shedding on the way, so go slow, give yourself time, and continue to build those anchors of time to play, explore, and care for yourself. All right, the final aspect of this chapter is a very wild challenge in which Julia Cameron suggests an entire week of no reading. She calls it reading deprivation. And in the year that we are in, in the future, from when this book was written, I find this so funny because what she calls out as the distractions and perils of reading are, in this day and age, in my opinion, much more relevant to social media, if not all forms of digital media and communication. Pick your poisons. Instagram, Twitter, anything on your phone with a notification, Facebook, email, text, news, they're all slot machines. Cameron is concerned, not dissimilarly, with over-consuming media and argues that we seek distraction by reading novels or newspapers rather than being present in our surroundings, say on the subway or in a park where there's much for us to observe. So what she wants is for us to experience silence and to return to the ability to hear ourselves think and feel. She says, we gobble the words of others rather than digest our own thoughts and feelings rather than cook up something of our own. She's attempting to drive us to such boredom and desperation that instead of work, we begin to play. I think this is an interesting challenge. I can't speak to its effectiveness as I personally am unwilling to halt all reading for an entire week. And I assume there's many other things with that that she would now prohibit as well. But I think that versions of this challenge are a really wise undertaking and a great thing to try. Probably many of us have taken some type of social media fast at some point or another, and I really do recommend it, particularly if you're struggling to make time for your creative work or even just accessing your creative thinking or sense of groundedness. All right, so I encourage you to not take the easy, easy way out here. It's not going to count if you... Okay, it's not about counting. It's not going to help. You can count it all you want. You can check it off your list. But the point here is to really pick something that does distract you, that does keep you from sitting with other things you could then explore, other things you could notice? Do you have some sort of commute or some sort of environment that you are often in where you could take off the podcast, set down the phone, and experience something different, do some observation is there something you go to in every break during your day that you could replace for one week with exploring what else might take your interest, might come through, through your mind? So imagine one week without one of the following. Email, news, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, insert favorite time-wasting app. And then whatever you choose, set yourself up for success. So you'll need to really cut ties with it. You'll need to delete the app, log out from your computer, make sure whatever it is, it's not going to show itself to you during this break. If you're going super bold and turning off something like email, Make sure you set up an autoresponder or let others know you're going offline to prevent issues. Maybe something like email, you try it on a week when you shouldn't be on it anyway, because for instance, you're taking the week off of work. So bye-bye email. All right, let me know how it goes and good luck clearing your brain. before we sign off on these chapters, if none of that stuff appealed to you in terms of activities or you want it all and you are hungry for homework, here's a couple of activities from this chapter that I thought were interesting. One is looking at your environment and carving out a space for you to be creative. So it's easy to misread this as set up a creative workspace for yourself, but that's not really what it is. It's more like um, creating a fort for yourself almost. So she says, look at your house. Is there any room that you could make into a secret private space for yourself? Convert the TV room, buy a screen or hang a sheet and cordon off a section of some other room. This is your dream area. It should be decorated for fun and not as an office. All you really need is a chair or pillow, something to write on, some kind of little altar area for flowers and candles. This is to help you center on the fact that creativity is a spiritual and not an ego issue. This sounds so lovely. If you've created one of those spaces in your home, uh, can we come over? Moonlight Writers Club at your house? All right. Second one, an extended artist date. She says, plan a small vacation for yourself. One weekend day, get ready to execute it. If a vacation is not in order, how about an at-home retreat day? One day, what would that look like for you? And finally, she suggests throwing out an outfit that she calls a low self-worth outfit. I love clearing stuff out, so I'm all about this. If you have something that makes you feel really blah or you've just worn it so many times that it no longer gives you love or it is just a reminder of such an old self who did not make the choices you're now making let it go. Okay, Moonlighters, I will see you soon. Hi, my friend. It is time for Ask Molly. Let's hear it. Today's question. Just starting to put my ideas to paper. Even when I have in the past, I have lost steam. So perhaps I'm afraid of putting in time and it going to waste, quote unquote, as I have a history of not finishing my writing works. Time scarcity and also wondering if I'm even, quote unquote, creative enough with words. Would love to know some pointers around these. Sometimes I feel like I already know the answers, but don't trust myself. I have taken it upon myself to dub this anonymous asker wasted words. Spoiler alert, there's no wasted words, but let's hit it. Thank you so much for this question. Question on a question on a question. There's a lot packed in here. So it sounds a little bit like sneaky, self-defeating thoughts masquerading as truth have got you down. Perhaps. So one place to start with that, which can be um, a creepy little thought about anything, is to try to catch your thoughts in the act as they occur. See if you can notice the nay saying as it's saying nay. Then once you start to grasp and be able to slow down and catch these moments when there's a bad guy in your brain, you can replace those thoughts with an alternate story, even if you're not like totally feeling it yet. For instance, rather than feeling that your unfinished projects are going to waste, how about taking stock of the evidence of your creativity and capacity to write by making an actual list, a folder, or just going through the works in progress you've created or works you probably have finished that you're not acknowledging in the moment to remind yourself of the proof that you have written. So I know sometimes it's hard to just go with the happy vibes of like, I am a writer. I can do it. When you're really caught up in like this web of negative thoughts. So what we can always do though, is really piggyback on the confidence that comes from the fact that we have written, right? We forget this all the time. I don't know if writers always felt this way. Um, obviously in the past, they had way more problems. Like I cannot imagine revising without a computer I would be so dead. But for instance, when people had to write on typewriters or, I don't know, handwrite everything, when everything went on a piece of paper, I imagine you have a lot more tangible sense of what you've created. You have a visual reminder there all the time. That's not how most of us write, right? Even if you have a notebook, it's probably like away somewhere, and more than likely, Most of the things you've created are invisible because they are hidden in the cloud. They're in your Google Drive, they're in various folders. If you're anything like me, you don't even know what folders they're in. You just search for them when you want them. So it can feel like these projects have gone to waste, like we've never done anything when actually you have a bunch of stuff you've done. So I really recommend taking time, taking a couple of hours to do some sort of actual archive of your own work. If that feels kind of like mm, to you, there's another reason you may feel kind of like eh, about that, which is that that's going to really validate that you are a writer. And that might be kind of scary, right? Like, well, who am I to take the time to Um, put my own work in an archive to make a list of my own work, right? But on the other side of that is going to be both this sense of confidence that you can shoot down the naysayer with of, no, no, I can finish things. I am a writer. I am creative. Look at this list of three stories that I have finished writing. It's also going to validate the sense of, oh, I am a writer because I know what I have written. I have a catalog. I have a list of my own works. I have a list of works. How awesome would that be? If you do this, write to me. Let me know how it goes. Show off your report cards to me, your lists of your um, beautiful archive, however you create it. Also, because you're super creative. Maybe you don't just do that in like a simple document, but also just do that because it'll be easy and you can take 15 minutes to do it. But maybe you want to make it illustrated. Maybe you're super good at design and you want to make it beautiful. Um, Give yourself a win. Okay. So the other side of this or another thought is I know that I have drafts I'll never finish, right? So it's also okay to let some stuff go. There's a million reasons for that. Sometimes you write something just for the creative practice. Everything we write, nothing's ever wasted. Everything we're writing helps us write. It helps us improve our voice, how we write, come up with ideas, use our imagination, build our creative muscle, and sometimes... We start something and then it just doesn't hold our interest. There's a million reasons, and it's okay to let some of that stuff go. I also know that some of the projects that I have never finished in the past could turn into something really cool someday. Maybe I'm gonna open up one of those documents that I don't even know is on my computer right now, and I'm gonna think, wow, I don't even remember writing this. This is so cool, and I know how to make this better and turn it into something or you're going to create a character or a phrase or an image in a random draft you're working on that whether or not you reference it again or not you're going to end up pulling into something else that you're writing because it's already alive for you so once you start writing something you can always go back to it it doesn't just go away So don't forget about all the files you already have. Not having finished something doesn't mean that you can't finish it. And I bet that you already have a little list of stuff that you have made. And if you don't, then take 15 minutes and go write a 50-word poem with 10 lines in it. Is that even possible? I don't know. That sounds like the shortest possible thing you could make. Uh, And call it done. Okay, that's it for Ask Molly. See you soon. You've been listening to Moonlight Writers Club, created by me, Molly Thornton. If you love the show, please leave us a review and remember to subscribe or follow wherever you listen. To learn more or contact me, visit mollythorntonwrites.com.